Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Stay tuned to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as we sit down with Mark Casson to discuss prison ministries. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is a weekly podcast of Greenville Seminary. We try to do this each and every week, uh, though we haven't for the last couple weeks, due, due to some scheduling conflicts and other matters. But we are back, and we are delighted, actually, to sit in studio and talk with a man who has a unique perspective on ministry, a, a, a perspective that perhaps many of us have rarely thought about, and that is a ministry to those who are incarcerated or who are in prison and, in fact, need the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel as much as anybody else. And so we do have the pleasure of welcoming Mark Casson on the program today. He is the executive director of Metanoia Ministries, as well as the director of prison ministries for the Mission to North America of the Presbyterian Church in America. So, Mark, it's great to have you in studio today, as it were, and I look forward to talking with you about this subject. Thank you, William. Glad to be here. Great. Thank you. Uh, Just real quick up front, what got you started in prison ministries to begin with? Uh, My incarceration. I was uh, in the Monterey County Jail back in 1989, um, facing life plus 14 years for crimes that I had committed, and um, a Gideon, Mm. a man with the Gideons International, came in and uh, on a certain day, he, the Lord saved me. And so I went to court. I pleaded guilty to the charges, and in God's grace, uh, they spared me 14 years. They dropped three charges against me, and I just got the life sentence. Wow, that's great. Now, well, it's great in the sense that you came to Christ. Now, you came to Christ prior to your sentencing then? Correct. I was in the jail. Um, I had been lying to everyone and saying I hadn't done it, and uh, a bunch of different lies that you can think of and, and to tell people. And then when I was converted, that was the first thing I could do in my faith to act righteously was to tell the truth now. Sure, absolutely, to demonstrate that your profession was real. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. Now, how long were you actually incarcerated? Uh, Fifteen and a half years. Okay, and I was reading on the Metanoia website, as a matter of fact, and we'll give that information out to the listeners here towards the end of the program, but I was reading that you had a number of opportunities to be paroled, um, turned down uh, on a number of occasions, and then suddenly um, you were released. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how that uh, unfolded. Uh, Yes, in in California, when you're serving a life sentence, you go before a panel of people, appointees, uh, called the Board of Parole Hearings. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to demonstrate remorse. You have to uh, have parole plans, be able to discuss your crime, your in-prison activities, etc. And I had gone to five such hearings and been denied at each one of those. Different years of denials, the first three of them were two-year denials, and then the second two were one-year denials. And then in 2003, I got found suitable, September of 2003. Wow. So it's relatively recent, I guess, if you, um, I'm just trying to think what, what was I doing in 2003, but um, relatively recently. Um, and then at that point, you began to work directly in prison ministries? Um, yes and no. I, I was involved in prison ministry from the inside. I would, I would have, you may have classified it out here as church planting. I, I didn't know the terminology, but mm-hmm. um, I did counseling and I exhorted on the yard and I did Bible studies every single day. Um, very led various worship services and music ministry, library ministry, you name it, we did it. And so mm. I, that started there. And then when I was released, I was blessed by the parole department, actually, in the state of California to go back into prison and take the gospel. Uh, I went 15 times there, and then I started doing other prison ministry in my local area, as well as through a national prison ministry of Metanoia Ministries. Well, wow, that's great. Now, how did you get connected with... Um 
with Metanoia? Is that something you actually founded, or was that something that was already in place? It was founded by a guy that I did time with, um, really? Dean Marshall. He's a PCA pastor down in North Carolina, and he and I were in prison together in Corcoran in 1989 through 91. He was a chaplain's clerk when I first got mm. into prison, and actually somebody who led me up in the Reformed faith as an early baby Christian. He got out, went to Westminster Seminary out in Escondido, um, graduated there, and he started this ministry as a challenge from Peter Jones. Dr. Peter Jones said, okay, you've got this background as a heroin addict and an armed robber, and you've got a Master of Divinity degree in in pastoral ministry. How are you going to put those things together? And so he and his wife opened their home to four parolees who had drug and alcohol issues, Mm. and that's what started the ministry. Um, From that, it grew into a discipleship ministry because as they started getting more guys coming out of prison, they realized many of these men had not ever been discipled while they were in prison. They had no idea about basic Christian uh, living, how to live as a Christian. And so um, they developed five correspondence courses, and, and we recruit people in the churches to serve as instructors one-on-one with a prisoner. Now, you mentioned the correspondence courses, and as I was reading down through your own personal experience and background, it, it seemed as though during the time that you were um, on the inside, as it were, mm-hmm. um, that there were f- very few Bible studies available of that nature. Was that your experience, by and large? There are many Bible studies if you want to study the Fluffernutter, uh, Benny Hinn, and Jimmy Swaggart uh, doctrines and Billy Graham. Uh, there are only, There's only one other Reformed study that I know of, and I did that one. And I was blessed to study with Reformed Bible College, mm-hmm. a program that doesn't exist anymore for prisoners, but it was there when I was in. Reformed Theological Seminary, I took four courses through them, through correspondence, a program that doesn't exist anymore, uh, um, but it was mm-hmm. there when I was there by the grace of God. And so, um, But otherwise, no, there, there was nothing. And there's nothing like ours where you have a one-on-one connection with somebody out here in the right. community. Our courses take about two years to go through from start to finish, and during those two years, you have the same person sending you an encouraging letter every time and, and, and grading your lessons and giving you feedback and getting to know you. And now we're partnered with Lake Ear Ministries, so they can now, students can take 18 more courses uh, after they finish ours through Lake Ear Academy. Yeah, I saw, I, I, I was perusing your website today in preparation for our, our chat um, on this subject today, and I saw that you were partnered with them, and I think that's wonderful because they have an, um, they have an ability to reach out they already have done a lot of that legwork in the past, and so they have a strong mechanism already in place. And tapping into that, I think, is is great that you're able to do that. Now, currently you're serving, I think I read, you're serving as a ruling elder? Yes, since 2006. In what church is that? It's Sierra View Presbyterian Church out in Fresno, California. Okay, and so you, you're residing in the California area at this time then? I do. My wife and I drive 75 miles one way to go to church. We're not like the East Coast where there's a Presbyterian church in every corner. Um, Our closest PCA church is uh, two and a half hours. 75 miles. Now listen to that, those of you who complain. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. Complain about driving 20 minutes to go to church. Um, 75 miles in California. That's probably (laughs) like three hours of drive time. Um, If you've ever been to California, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, don't worry about it. Um, Google it. You'll figure it out. It is the only church I've ever known. They have loved me and been a great family for me, Um, wonderful people there. Now, were you connected with that church while you were incarcerated? No. So it was after the fact and— I I walked uh, walked in um, 10 days after I was released, and my fiancé and I went there that evening. I asked the pastor, uh, may I call you? And he said, sure. So I called him, and I said, hey, pastor, you know, I just got out of prison after 15 and a half years. Is it okay if I come back to your church? And he— thought about it for a few seconds and said, sure, I can't think of any reason why. And I said, well, I had a violent crime. This is what I did. And I just don't know if that would scare people away. I don't mm. want you know people to say, hey, if that guy comes to church, I'm going to leave. And he said, well, keep coming back and see what happens. And no one left. And everyone, it's been, I've been, just been loved and overwhelmed by the love of that congregation. So, um, Let me ask a personal question about when you came to Christ, how did that change you? I mean, other than the obvious things, I mean, we're Reformed guys, we're sitting around talking about this, but it, I think it's hard sometimes for a listener or even somebody who's never really experienced that side of life to really understand just how much difference there is, um, especially not knowing you then, 
um, I know personally I went through those those periods in life where I was quite rebellious, and by the grace of God, I did not end up in, in trouble or in jail, uh, it, but certainly could have. Um, what What was it that brought you to an understanding of the gospel mm-hmm. and, and radically, and if, for a lot of people, they would say it was a radical change. Uh, sure. Well, I want to say this. I was a normal guy like everybody else. I graduated high school. I was serving in the Army. I was in Army intelligence. I was a linguist. Mm-hmm. And so by looking at me, I'm just another guy like everybody else. But I committed this crime, and I, I was in the county jail, and I didn't want to go listen to the Christian person. I never went. They, they, he came twice a week, and the Christians in the cell block would ask me if I wanted to go. I wouldn't go. And then one day I needed to get out of my cell to make a phone call, and so I used the church service as an opportunity to go out and make my call, and I sat down with the intention of never listening to the guy, mm-hmm. and he started talking. Um, he spoke about John chapter 1, where uh, John the Baptist says, one comes after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. And I was a shoe salesman for four years of high school, and so I, my ears perked up and I listened. And then he started talking about anger and murder in your heart and all these other uh, things, and I, I started thinking, how does he know what's in my heart? The, 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 the man was speaking directly to me, and I was broken down. And, and so I went in my cell, and for the next three days, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, I couldn't sleep. All I could do was confess my sins, that I could re- every sin I could remember. I read the New Testament and the Psalms and Proverbs cover to cover uh, six times in those three days. And as I said before, going to court and pleading guilty was was the natural result of that, that I knew I knew how God wanted me to live at least a little bit. I know that he didn't like dishonesty. Um, and so... When I went to prison for the first three months of my incarceration, I didn't have anything but my Bible. There was no instruction. There was no fellowship. We were locked down a lot. It was a brand new prison, so we were locked down a lot, meaning I'm in my cell with with just my Bible. And, and I came to the Reformed faith through that. The, the first thing Dean Marshall said to me when, when I met him at the chapel was, are you a Calvinist? And I said, I don't know what that means. And he explained it to me, and I said, yeah, I believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. Mm. Well, I want to read something that um that i pulled off the website so i i suspect this would be okay um because i think it's powerful and i think it's really captures um what happened and why you have a passion i think for this ministry and this work um i just read it as it's stated here um There are some things that a person never forgets. They are indelibly etched into his mind. This, of course, being my guest, Mark Casson. It was the words of a Superior Court judge who told him in March 1989, quote, I hereby sentence you to life in prison with the possibility of parole. The key word here, sir, is possibility. You may never parole from prison, and in fact, you may die there. Do you understand this sentence? I am imposing on you, unquote. These words were spoken only a few weeks after Mark was converted to Christ through jail prison ministry. For the next 15 years, he would spend his days growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark availed himself of the few Bible studies and courses with which were available to him, and he spent much of his time in the Word, teaching others, and ministering from the inside. And, and he haven't stopped even since that time, and the Lord was gracious to have you released and to work with metanoia. Now, the term metanoia, what does it mean? You're a seminary student, you should know. It is the Greek word for repentance. It means a change of mind or a change of heart, a change of direction, a turning away. Mm. And, a, and for for men in or or women even um in prison, uh, it, there's sort of a double bondage. Um they're in prison as all humanity is in sin. But then there's that other aspect, that lack of freedom, I guess, for lack of a better word. There, the inability to do what you want, go where you want to go, um, that is also there. It's a factor. Um, what challenges have you found working in this kind of ministry that may, may not be found uh, perhaps in other ministries? Um, a great question. I'm probably going to offend a lot of our listeners by saying this, but I find that I'm an honest person uh, generally. And and, um, 
by and large, if you look at the reform community, we are a middle to upper middle class, white, suburbanite, Republican leaning people. And since the 1988 presidential election, when Willie Horton cost the, the, the election for Michael Dukakis, mm-hmm. the Republican mantra has been tough on crime, lock them up and throw away the key, tough on crime. And we as a church have responded to that, and that's become part and parcel of our theology. And so when it's very clear, Jesus says, I was in prison and you came into me, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, remember those who were in prison as though you were chained next to them, the church forgot that. They have forgotten, especially the Reformed community, we who hold the truth of God in its most pure form have forgotten the prisoners. We've forgotten those Christian brothers and sisters, a quarter million of them who are incarcerated. We have forgotten them. And so I see my role as a a wake-up call, a clarion call, if you will, to the church to remind us that Jesus says, when you do these to the least of these, my, my children, you do them unto me. That us ministering the gospel to prisoners, Christian prisoners, is ministering the gospel to Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, and it's so true. And it, it it's easy, I think, as you indicated, our social, our climate, our the way we think. Um, you know, they're they're there. We're here. Keep them over there. We'll stay over here. Not in my backyard. Yeah, everything's fine. I, you know, you mentioned the backyard. I, I, I when I was younger, I had um, I grew up in Western New York, as we talked off air, and. Um, Got to reading a little bit about the prison riots at Attica State Prison, and I thought, well, you know, I want to go see this so-called famous, infamous, famous prison. And so I thought I'd just take a drive out to Attica, and I figured, you know, it's probably this big, huge place out in the middle of nowhere. And come to find out, it's right in the middle of a neighborhood. Uh, Right across the street, there's houses and people living and going about their lives and doing what they're doing. But there's this mentality, I think, that... They stay there, we stay here, and never the twain shall meet. And it's sad to see that the church has somewhat adopted that attitude. One of the hard things for a prisoner is that there's a constant reminder that you are under the law. Every officer wears a badge. Every cell door is clicked with a lo- with a key. Mm-hmm. There's a fence and razor wire and men with guns. And so you're you're constantly reminded of the law and the burden of the law and the weight of the law and your debt to the law. But more than anyone else, they need to hear about grace. They need, they need to hear about mercy and God's love and his kindness and his goodness because it is a dark environment uh, of the law. Yeah, and that there's forgiveness even if the state will never show it. I will never be fully forgiven. I cannot own a handgun in the United States of America, ever. Praise the Lord. But the Lord has um, has moved you to work in this work, in, in, in this ministry. And, and I admit, I, maybe to my own shame, uh, admit that I probably haven't given this, this part of the Christian life and, and the need that exists there uh, much thought. Um, and I and I suspect that I'm probably not alone um, in in that area. Now, one of the missions of Metanoia, you you provided me with a, a, a wonderful brochure and um, that we can talk through here. One of the missions of Metanoia is to engage the church in this work. Um, how does how does Metanoia do that? Uh, what in what ways do they engage the church? Um, a couple of different ways. The main way is I go and visit churches and do presentations to them, usually in a Sunday school class. Uh, I've been asked to preach at certain times as well. Um, this next weekend, I'm going to a church's missions conference, so I will do presentations there. Other ways, uh, we attend various uh, conferences. Um, last month, the PCA had its biannual uh, Mercy Conference, and I mm-hmm. did six seminars there. Over the course of that, um, I've done seminars at other churches. They'll have uh, prison ministry conferences, and, and I'll go and speak to those. Um, another way is just through email correspondence, web correspondence. As you were, we were talking about off-air, um, the, the various marketing ways out here there are mm-hmm. um, to get the word out. Things, Programs like this uh, where people will hear who may not normally hear about prison ministry or be thinking about it, somebody will contact me and say, hey, I've got questions, and so I help them. I'm a resource that the church can use to even think about how can we get involved in prison ministry? What should we do? What steps do we take? How do we do it? What's, what are some of the barriers that, that you've experienced with churches 
um, in this area. Um, I'm just reading your brochure here. One of the things that that stands out right away is that many churches have been burned and have a bad taste in their mouth. What, what does that mean? Well, you poor, you, let's say you have a prisoner come to your church, somebody who gets out of prison and they come to your church and you invest time and resources mm-hmm. and love into that person. And then they go back and use drugs again and they end up back on a violation for a year that burns a church. They, they're, they're like, why do we bother? You know, what's the point? The problem is we don't do that with the the guy in the church who's a, a, a an accountant and has a drinking problem, we don't mm-hmm. we don't look at him as burning us. Or the the woman who commits adultery, we don't look at her as burning us. Um, the guy that's abusing his kids, we don't look at him as burning us. You know, it's, it's it's typically just the prisoner that we think about that, and we almost expect it. We almost expect that they're going. Well, we're sinners, aren't we? Sinners right. are going to sin again, and yet we're ready to say aha on this guy, on this gal that came out of prison. And so churches have been burned. Some churches have been taken for thousands of dollars. They bring somebody into their congregation, and he goes and rips off somebody at the church. Does that mean we stop? Does Christ want us to stop ministering to no. people? Yeah, and I think you make a great point that um, the church is full of sinners. And whether they have a criminal record or not, um, the reality is that we're all capable of some of these things um, at any moment. Um, I, I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. I think of King David, who um, man after God's own heart, yet committed some of the most uh, some of the most vile sins um, a human being could commit. Yet um, God forgave him, and um, and so, God used him, and God used him. And certainly, there were consequences, and we're not. I don't think we're either one of us saying that there's not consequences to any of this, no. but those consequences apply to every person. Mm-hmm. Certainly, not just the the person who's been in prison who has a record um if it, i if i can say I, i'm i'm not a prison activist right i'm oh, very sure. thank, i'm very thankful that the state has a way to protect its citizenry citizenry from people who do grievous things and i certainly belonged in prison i'm very i was facing the death penalty with the army and so by god's grace i just got a life sentence and i didn't get executed so i'm very thankful uh for prisons and and what they do but I just want the church to remember to be merciful to those who are in prison, who are Christian brothers and sisters. That's right. And, and the reality is, is that when you look back on it, as, as one pastor had said one time to me, that God's providence is something that's best read backwards. We often Amen. don't know what's going on until after it's over. Um, and in your situation, had you not been, in, had you not made those choices and gone through those things in life, you may not have come to the gospel. Right and then be used of God in this area to help equip the church in, in what has become a, a big need. I mean, I, I don't know what the statistics are out there, but I, I know it's, it's, it's if I did, I'm sure there, there are staggering statistics as far as the percentage of, of the population that is incarcerated. 2.4 million people in our country are incarcerated. That's 1% of our adult population. Mm. If you take the number of people who are on in prison, jail, probation, or parole, it's it's 7 million people, 3.25% of our adult population. Um, 60 to 70% of them, two-thirds, are going to go back. They're going to commit another crime. For Christians, about 40% are going to go back. However, if somebody is discipled in prison, has loving relationships out here, and comes to a community such as a church out here, they're less than 5%. So there's a great social and economic reason for the church to be involved in ministry as well as fulfilling the commandments of Christ. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, and I, and it's, I think we can talk about this for a few minutes. Um, the idea of discipleship, mm-hmm. not just um, going in, giving the gospel, they make a profession of faith and then leave them. Um, but to nurture, to guide, equip, teach, help, come alongside of. And, and that's one of the points here that, you, that seems to be, as I'm looking at your, your brochure here that's in front of me, um, a very big piece of the equation. Yes, we we believe firmly that the Scripture teaches that discipleship is relational ministry, life-on-life ministry, mm. and that's why we match. When we're doing the correspondence part of our ministry, we match each prisoner, one prisoner with one person out here in the church. And, it, and, it, and it's actually a very beneficial ministry for the people in the church. They, they grow in, in their lives. Uh, imagine a family ministering to a prisoner, a man and his wife and two children— 
ministering to one prisoner, praying for him? And how does the prisoner feel to know that there's children praying for him? And the children seeing this new ministry they may have never been in, uh, involved in, but uh, it's always relational. Discipleship's relational ministry. It can't be done without getting to know somebody. Now, how does Metanoia go about doing that? Um, I mean, just sitting here thinking about just the logistics of it, I, I, I've uh, used to work in logistics and um, planning and, and how to get things done. Um, how do you do this with a person who's on the inside, as it were? Sure. Well, the way it looks is the prisoner signs up, and, and there's different ways that we recruit prisoners. After I'm finished with, here today, I'm going to go down the road about 25 miles, and I'm going to speak to a group of 40 or 50 prisoners in a chapel down there. Mm. And some of them invariably will want to s- sign up to be in s- uh, students of ours. And so they will send their form in, and they'll be given a, a, a course, the first lesson, and they'll fill it out and send it to the ministry. Then the ministry will match them up with somebody I've recruited out in the church, that person will be their instructor. They'll they'll grade the lesson, but then they'll send an encouraging letter back with each lesson. And the letter is really the most important thing. That's where the relationship is developed, through the correspondence, through the writing of letters to one another. The lessons are just making sure you're getting the information. The letters are, do you know how to apply it? Uh, how can I be praying for you? What are your needs? Uh, how can the church support you? You know, those types of things as far as books or listening to sermons. What can How can we get them information so that they— they're getting spiritually fed out in there just like we are out here. How does this ministry differ from, well, I, in my ignorance, I don't know too many other prison ministries, to be honest. but um, Prison Fellowship. Prison Chuck, Fellowship, Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson. How would it differ or maybe, well, let's start with similar. How is it similar? It's similar in that we want to do the same thing. We have the same objective, which is um, the spiritual growth and uh, support of prisoners, Christian Mm -hmm. prisoners. Prison fellowship's a little bit different in that they don't have a correspondence course ministry. They don't have something you study. They they have a newsletter that they put out and a booklet that has teaching in it that you Mm -hmm. can read if it's in your prison, but they don't actually have any instructional. And they've also, in recent years, probably the last decade or so, they've really— their main focus has been on reintegrating Christian prisoners out into society once they're released, getting the community to come alongside them out here in, in this world. And so they have a, a smaller in-prison footprint than they did, they used to have. They are more focused on the reintegration aspect now. Yeah, I should have read your brochure a little closer. Uh, you got the statistics on the back here. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking as you were talking about the discipleship model and and the goals that you have, um, the thought came to mind as I'm reading one of the statistics. America currently houses 25% of the world's prison population. Correct. That's a pretty large mission field. In fact, I would I would I would venture to guess that that's bigger than some small countries. <laughs> yes. We're, well, keep in mind that we are not necessarily evangelistic. We're we're not on the evangelistic side. We are ministering to those who are professing believers. It's been my experience, and I think statistics bear out, that roughly 10% of the prison population are professing evangelicals. That's not Roman Catholic. That's not Oneness Apostolic mm. and, and Mormon. We're talking about professing evangelical Christians of mainline denominations. And so that's, in, in our country, that's 250,000 people. 250,000 prisoners of Jesus Christ behind bars. We would like to see those prisoners who aren't getting out, we'd like to see them become church planners on the inside and disciple makers on the inside and, and to see the, the work that can go on. And our vision, if I can tell you, is we want to be discipling 20,000 prisoners and having 20,000 people out here in the church discipling 20,000 prisoners one-on-one by 2020. Right now we're at about 300. So we have a long way to go. And some people say, well, that's a big task. There's no way. And you know what? God can do anything. With God, all things are possible. That's right. Now, how long has Betanoia been been serving the church? It has been in existence since 1996. Um, there was a hiatus of a couple of years around the turn of the century, and it started back up in 2005 and had been going strong since then. Hmm. And I came on board with uh, Mission North America, the PCA, in 2009. Now, dovetailing a little bit on this discipleship model, um, one thing that's striking to me as I'm looking at this um, brochure you gave is it says here, when a student has completed our level one courses, ultimate questions in biblical Christian truth, 
and it's within two years of their release, and I think this is really important, and I think this is a key aspect to your ministry, they're eligible to apply for a Christian mentor. The role of the mentor is to meet regularly with the Christian prisoner, usually once a month, to help prepare a comprehensive plan for reintegration. Now, as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that means there has to be people in place to be this mentor. This doesn't happen by accident. Correct. And so is there a need for people to work in this in this role with, with Metanoia? There are. In fact, if we, have tw- if we look at the vision and we have, let's say we have 20,000 prisoners who are in our courses and 20,000 people, surveys and instructors, we also need 20,000 people to be mm-hmm. mentors that live near enough to the prison to go and visit. Um, right now we have a few of our students who've gone that far that, that actually have mentors, but we started mentoring in a different capacity. Um, I was just did a mentor training of the 20 men from First Press in Chattanooga to minister uh, to mentor men at Walker State Prison in Georgia. And our we were the pre- PCA was approached and asked to raise up 200 mentors for these men that will visit every other week for two years, and then they'll leave, and, and there'll be new men that come in. And so we we suddenly went from having just a few to now raising up 200. Now, what would it take for a person, let's say someone's listening to this program right now and they're thinking, you know, I could do that. What would it take for a person to become a mentor? All they have to do is uh, send me an email or call me on the phone, and then uh, I, we have a manual and can train them pretty quickly. And they would need to live close to a prison where we have someone uh, for them to visit. Sure, you know, sure. One of our students. Another thing that our, this brochure doesn't say, it's a little old, but when a student also, when they finish the the first level courses, they get a Reformation Study Bible now, a paperback Reformation Study Bible for free, a, a tool that they can have, which I can attest to the importance of that tool. Uh, in many prisons, you are limited. In California, we're limited to 10 books. So maybe some of your listeners someday will sit down and decide which 10 books they would keep if they had to make that choice. Yeah, I don't know if I could, if I had to, throw my library out and say, okay, I can only keep 10 of these books. I don't know if that would be, well, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision, but um, certainly that's some, a decision people have to make. And having this connection, this, this, this relationship with somebody also gives the prisoners something to look forward to. I mean, there's, it's, it's talking and discussing with someone of like-minded faith about matters that are important to them. Um, it challenges that they run into, you were incarcerated and, what were, what are some of the challenges that 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 Christian inmates face that we don't typically think about? Um, open hostility from the society around you because you don't look like them and act like them. Prisons full of wicked people who have done wicked things. I don't have any tattoos. I I didn't want to get tattoos. I hung around with people of other races, mm-hmm. and so the white racists wouldn't talk to me. I, I I couldn't even sit down and have a conversation with people that look like me. Um, how about going on lockdown for six weeks, not getting out of your cell for six weeks? Um, how about interpersonal relationship issues with your cellmate and there's nothing you can do about it? You guys are locked into a little room together. Um, you get a letter that your mom died. I got a phone call. My mom died. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't just go and make phone calls. You can't just go. Uh, men and women who are married Christian brothers and sisters who are married and, and their marital problems, well, the mail moves pretty slowly. And so by the time you get a letter notifying you that your wife uh, wants to separate and then you write back, you know, now suddenly two weeks have passed. And, and so things like that, that uh, we don't have to worry about out here. We can shoot a text message, an email, a phone call, smoke signal, fax machine, you name it. Uh, in there, you're very, very limited mm-hmm. in your communication with the outside world. Mail, uh, that's something that's fantastic is that mail is a huge thing for a prisoner. We, most of the mail we get now is junk. Right, that's we get all these junk offers and everything else. Yep, Very seldom yep. do you get a real letter from right. a family. You never get a real letter from a family. Yeah, member, I, right? I can't remember the last time right. I got a real for, letter from for anybody. A, for a prisoner, that's his lifeline to the world out here. And so, in and in some cases, many cases, I dare say, they've burned the bridges with their family. They've burned mm. the and their family doesn't believe they're they're a changed person yet, and they won't even listen to them or take a phone call from them so that they could hear that this person's changed. So, in many cases, this relationship with the mentor is the only relationship they have with somebody out here. And so it's a you know it's very important. Mail calls the most important time of the day in prison. I remember I was in the military and you know mail yeah it, this doesn't equi- doesn't come close it's to similar. paralleling. But there's you know mail call was a big deal. Yes, and especially when I was in basic training and 
whatnot. That was the only connection I had with the outside world, as you were, because they had you pretty, pretty restricted. But I, I certainly understand that. And so having this this Christian mentor, having this 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 more mature, hopefully, um, man in your life that you can talk with about these things, seems like a very big connection, very big bridge. Moving to that that day when they they hear the words, you're released, you've been paroled, you're able to go. Um, how does that impact a Christian man um, who's been incarcerated for, in your case, it was many years, and then all of a sudden now you have this freedom that you haven't been used to? And how does that impact a, a professing Christian, and what kind of changes go on usually at that level? Um, because that seems to me like that would be a very big moment. Either it could go very badly one direction or very well in another. Um, how does the mentor then work with that prisoner? Well, I think I think it's important for the mentor to understand the various things that go on with prisoners, especially as they're nearing release. If If somebody has done more than 10 years in prison, and that could be 10, 15, 20. I know I have friends who did 25, 26, 28 years. Um, the world has changed, mm-hmm. and they don't know anything about it. And so to be able to have someone, you know, none of us like to ask for directions, right? We don't like to ask how things go. Well, when you, when you, when you go in to park your car in a city and they don't take coins in a meter anymore, but you have to go and put go find a, the, the, the parking thing, you know, you're gonna, you've got to ask. They've got to have someone there to show them. And, um the time warp, what I call the time warp, when I stepped out of prison, I went in when I was 21. I came out at age 37. I still thought I was 21. I listened to 80s music. I The clothing, that, the little clothing that I had for my families was from the 80s. I thought and spoke in terms of the 80s. I still say rad and you know, terms that we haven't used in 10 years or 15 years. I know what years, you right? mean. Well, but I'm saying that, <laughs> that, that to, for the mentor to know that and to be sure. able to help them through that and, and to help choices. You're paralyzed. I got paralyzed by choice, making choices to go buy cosmetics. I didn't they, you guys didn't have the brands that we had in prison out here. And so I don't know what shampoo I want, what deodorant I want, what soap I want. Somebody is there to help me through those things. Yeah, and, it, and it's things that we take for granted. Right. And where a prisoner coming out of, uh, when he's coming into society again, um, as you said, that, that they don't know what to do. Um, it, it's, it, it's almost very culture shock, I, I guess, is the best way to explain it. One of the things that I'm reading here, and I think this is very important, um, and I'm glad to see, actually, as I'm reading this, um, is that that the mentor helps to move this prisoner and works closely with the local church. Yes. Um, and how does that work? How does that usually happen? Because I, I know, based on my limited experience with parole and whatnot, usually the state says you can only go here, you can't leave the state, you can't do this. You can, there's still certain restrictions on the um, on the uh, on the inmate who's now freed. Um, how does how does Metanoia help plug them into a local church? Um, that's probably the most uh, pleasing part of my job. When I know one of our students is getting ready to get out, and I know where they're going. I will contact the local PCA or OPC, URC, Solidly Reformed Church, and I will tell them, hey, we've got a guy who's getting ready to get out. He studied with us for three years. Uh, he's done great. Here, you can, Here's the name of his instructor. You can talk to them. He had a mentor for 18 of those uh, months, 18 months of those mm. for three years. So you can talk to that person as well. And in I want you to know if your church will come alongside him and and we have some resources for the church to find out, does the man need a place to stay? Does he have a job waiting for him? Does he have a transportation? Um, If he doesn't, is the church willing to help him get those things? You know, Jesus said to seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added. And and so the church is a place that we're supposed to go and worship God and, and, and through the church, those who have need will be helped. And I, I can help the, our ministry can help the, the church, figure out how to help that person. When I stepped out of prison, I was blessed. I had a job waiting. I actually paroled into a mansion. I had a fiance waiting. I had my money that my family had saved for me. So in a car, I had everything you could, you could want. Well, other people step out. They don't have anything. They have no family. They have no place to go. They go to a mission. They have no, well, they need to have a church. Absolutely. Go to the church and the church should respond. What would you say your greatest need um, in, in working 
with Matt and what what would you say Metanoia's greatest need from the church, the community at this point in time? It's twofold. I, I need people to do the job of the ministry and we need resources to do it with. And as usual that boils down to money. Money. Pure and simple. I know we're not supposed to a Christian program. We're not supposed to talk about these things. Well, the reality is that these kinds of mission work, these kinds of ministries, just like everything else in today's world, requires money, um, and it, it requires financial support. And it, maybe you can't financially support, but I'm certain people listening to this program can pray Amen. that God would lead people to give financially. Um, I should have said that was our first, that's the number one thing is prayer. Oh, sure, sure. You know, and the reality is this, um, you know, giving to these kinds of ministries, we need to be prayerful about those decisions we make. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, as, as Mark has indicated earlier, um, seeking God's kingdom first and foremost, um, sometimes means we have to sacrifice um, certain things, um, going out to dinner, the extra cable TV channels that we probably don't need. Um, There are people out there that are hurting and want to grow, and all they need is a few dollars to help make this happen. Um, We could all probably find a few dollars to do that. It it, it costs money. Um, It it says right here, your financial support, people who will pray and offer support to an annual budget that is currently around 170000 and you indicated this was this brochure is somewhat old. So it's probably, if I had to guess, it, it's probably more than that at, at this particular time. Um, but we also you also indicated that you need people. Yes. And, and we're going to give the email out here in a minute for those who are listening to this who say, you know, I live near a prison and uh, I could do something like this. And um, they're not going to throw you to the wolves. I don't think, um, and and cause you. There's a there's a plan in place. There's a program that will help teach you how to do this. Um, and um, so prayerfully consider those kinds of things. Uh, Mark, anything else you'd like to say about uh, Metanoia, or even maybe just your work with um, as director of prison ministries with the MNA, the Mission to North America. That's an extension of the Presbyterian Church in America, and um, it's it's a it's a ripe mission field, I would say. Yes, I, I want to give you, if you'd permit, I'd like to give you a couple of ways this ministry looks, so people can think about it in a sure, practical sure, sense. Absolutely. Uh, the first one is um, uh, one of the ruling elders at my church. Uh, his name is Rick. He and his wife and his two sons. Um, I, I approached them because a cellmate of mine that I lived with for nine years became a Christian after I got out. And so he um, he became one of our students, and I asked Rick, "Would you consider being his mentor?" And Rick said, "Well, we'll do it as a family." And so when they get their, their lesson from Tim, they sit down at at their kitchen table and, and mm-hmm. they pray together. And then when it's time to write the encouraging letter, uh, Rick, uh, Janet starts it off, and then Andrew and Daniel each write something, and then Rick writes something, and so they send it back. And they've been doing this for almost two years now, and, and I get to see both sides of it. I get to see how it's affected their family. When we have prayer services and their boys are praying for this guy as though he's their uncle. And to, he, to know how it has affected Tim to have mm. this family love him. And now they visited him as well. Uh, uh, Rick and Janet and I have gone and visited. And so um, that's one way. A family can do it. And it's a great way for, for parents to in, instruct their children. They can use the the booklets and say, hey, well, what do you think about this answer? Is it right or, or is he off here? And, and so it's a great way to help uh, get your children introduced to ministry from the comfort of your own kitchen table. Another way is uh, elderly people. You know, sometimes as people get older in life and they they don't feel like they can do anything, um, they can still instruct somebody through correspondence and encourage them and pray for them. And so it's a great ministry for people who may be in a convalescent home and can't get out Mm. to go to somewhere else. And and one other way is uh, I was interviewed by a lady uh, about two years ago, and she had just had a baby, two-week-old baby. And she's not going to the rescue mission with her church. She's not going to any other ministry. And she said, you know, this is a perfect ministry for my husband. And I've been praying about what could we do since we can't go out. You know, this is the perfect ministry. So you got somebody with a newborn, they could do this too. Wow. So there, there's a plethora. As you were talking, I was just thinking about a person that just came to my mind. And I won't say who um, for fear I'll embarrass this person. But um, <laughs> that 
is is wonderful at writing letters, has a heart for people, and is looking for something. This would fit very nicely. The time commitment is about thirty minutes a month, and you and and, and I'll tell you, the effect that you'll have on that person. Um, the analogy I use is anyone who's ever been in the hospital. If you ask them, did people come and visit you? And they say yes, ask them what they said. And they'll never be able to tell you. The fact, the love was in the fact that they visited. That's right. The love is in the fact that you grade his lesson and you send him this letter. It's not so much what you say, it's the fact that you're saying it, that you're consistent in the, in, in the love that you're exhibiting toward that person. Many, the statistics about 70% of prisoners grew up in fatherless homes. Wow. So this is this may be the first time somebody is actually being consistent in loving them in a in a fatherly godly way. Yeah, and 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 there's a huge as the statistics show, a very big need for it. Mark, how can um people get in touch with you? What um what email address might they use? Yeah, I know you indicated earlier that there would be an email. Sure. Um our website is uh pca-mna dot org and then slash metanoia and uh my email address is m casson that's m c a s s o n at p c a net dot o r g okay and the website just to repeat is pca-mna.org forward slash metanoia let me just spell that for those who are maybe driving and um have no way of writing this down but maybe they'll remember it's m e t a N-O-I-A. This will all be on our website at gpts.edu at the conclusion of this broadcast. And the email address is mcasson, M-C-A-S-S-O-N, at pcanet.org. If they go to the PCA website, um, to the M&A website, there's, they'll see the link on the left-hand side. Okay. It'll say Metanoia Prison Ministries, and they can just click on that. They don't have to worry about the slash or anything. Just go to M&A, PCA M&A. Great, great. That makes it very, very simple. And again, as I've said earlier, um, maybe you can't give financially. Maybe you can't do anything. Um, I use that word can't loosely. Um, I I find that I typically say can't when it's probably more like won't. Um, But um, maybe you legitimately can't. Okay, be that as it may. You can certainly pray for this ministry, and you can certainly pray for those men who are involved, who are on the receiving end of this ministry, uh, that they would grow in Christ, that they would um, mature in the faith, and that they would come to really understand, through the help of the local church and this work of metanoia, that um, Christ is for them. Um, Just like when you were lost in your sin in prison and Christ broke through and saved you, um, these people are no different in that regard. they're not strange, they're not tainted, they're not marked or branded in some other way. Um, they are people who have done things that maybe you didn't do. Um, be that as it may, they're still people who need the gospel and need to grow in the truth that we proclaim. And so you can pray for this ministry. You can commit to that. That is not difficult. We can all do that. And so I would encourage those who listen to this program to do that to pray for this ministry, pray that God would provide for them financially, provide the, the men that are needed to continue this work. Um, it is an important work. It's a mission field. It is, uh, it is a, a labor of love, and those who want to get involved can, can contact those um, various pieces of information that I just gave out. And uh, as Mark has said, it, 30 minutes a month, um, it's one sitcom a month, you don't have to watch, <laughs> and you can sit down, and you can use your family to do this and tie it all together and help serve the church in this capacity. So, Mark, it's been great talking with you about these things. Um, I, I feel like I've been educated in some respects to some of these things. Um, as we said earlier in the program, it's not something we, we it's not in the mainstream of our thought process, but yet it is a real need that exists out there, and I'm glad you were able to come and sit down with me and talk candidly about these things. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. I, I, it's a ministry. I can't do anything else. You know, I, I tried, I tried doing business and, uh, I was successful, but I was miserable. And, um, in 2009, God just, uh, broke me of it and said, do this. And so I can't see myself doing anything else until the Lord calls me home. Yeah. And you know, this is not TV. 
Um, but I can assure you, as I'm sitting across from this man and he's talking, I can tell he's very passionate about it. He has a love for this. Um, he's driven forward to do this. And so, um, again, um, I think his plea and mine would be that you at least pray about and pray for this work. Um, the Lord uses prayer. Um, Amen. Uh, we're Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of God, but he ordains the means as well as the ends. And so if we don't pray, it's not going to happen. And if we don't believe that, then we really don't understand prayer in the life of the believer. So pray for this ministry. Pray for Mark and his work. He travels a lot. Um, pray for his safety. Don't take these things for granted. And, and pray that God would use this to um, strengthen his church and, and build up his kingdom. And, um, and I think um, that would be Mark's hope and desire more than anything else to see Christ's kingdom grow as a result of this ministry um, that we've been talking about today. So, Mark, thank you for being on, and, and I'm um, thrilled to see uh, your passion for this, um, and I, I'm grateful that I've had a chance to talk to you about it because it's, it's given me personally um, some insight into some things that, as I said before, easy to dismiss or, or not even really consider. Um, so hopefully, as a result of this conversation, we're all more informed as to the needs that exist here and, um, and to the fact that there are people even in prison, who are Christians and who need to grow, just like we need to grow here on the outside. So thank you for being on. Thank you for, for having for me. For talking. My Appreciate pleasure. it. Let me uh, give the listeners a little bit of an update as to what's coming up. I um, am very grateful for one of the students here at the seminary who works tirelessly um, helping schedule and line up guests um, that can come on the program and talk about these kinds of things that we just discussed today. I'm, I, I've been doing podcasting for... Well, about um, I would say about five years or so, and I don't recall ever hearing a podcast talk about prison ministries. I'm sure it's happened. I just don't remember it, or I've never been encountered. I've never encountered it. Um, but these are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about. Other things as well um, coming up on Friday of this week. We're doubling up this week because we've been a little behind. Um, we're going to be talking more about prison ministry with Daniel Jarstifer. I think I got that right. Um, Mark's nodding across the table for me because we talked about that off air that I'd probably mess that up. So it sounds like I got that one right. And then after, um, and that will be Friday on the the 20th of April. And then next week we'll be talking with Nick, ba Nick Batsik about church planning. Um, and he is a church planner, and so he's very familiar with that process. And so look forward to that discussion with Nick. And coming up in June, that's I know that's a couple months away. We got other things lined up before that, but coming up in June, where we have pretty much blocked out the entire month of June to be a missions focused month. We're going to be having talking with missionaries, people who are actually on the field doing the work of missions. So we're going to be talking with those men and women as it pertains to that work um, during the month of June. So look forward to that coming up on the program. So until. Friday, as a matter of fact, when we talk with Daniel Jarstifer about Reformed Prison Ministries, we do thank everybody for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.